Today, we're talking about Border Patrol agents reportedly being ordered to push migrant kids and babies back into the Rio Grande, questions around Carly Russell's disappearance and later reemergence now heating up, Trump's about to get indicted again, Voice Critical is throwing out scamming accusations, the disturbing situation around the Gilgo Beach killer. We're going to talk about all that and so much more in today's brand new Philip DeFranco show you daily dive into the news, so buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. Starting with, we've got to talk about updates involving the mysterious disappearance of Carly Russell. Where she's the Alabama woman who vanished for two days after calling 911 about a toddler she said she saw on the side of the highway, then showing up back home Saturday night. And since then, her boyfriend has asked people to be respectful of her situation and saying she was literally fighting for her life for 48 hours, so until she's physically and mentally stable again, she is not able to give any updates or whereabouts on her kidnapper at this very moment. And her mother promising to give the media more information when they're ready, but the internet has been floating ideas and theories about what happened in the meantime. Like there being one theory that sex traffickers use the supposed toddler as bait to lure Russell into a trap. Though there, the nonprofit that runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline doubts those claims, saying, as far as we are aware this is not a tactic that traffickers use. And adding far more common ways that traffickers use to recruit is that it's a family member. You have a lifelong tie to them and they will exploit that. And so as time's gone on, we've increasingly seen more people accusing Russell of fabricating her own disappearance and calling the whole thing a hoax. With them pointing to unexplained details like the whereabouts of the supposedly missing toddler or a 911 recording that seemingly shows Russell's family reporting a call from her at a motel about five miles from where she went missing Saturday night. Though in that same call, first responders say the front desk staff had no residents checked in under Russell's name. And so with all this, you have the likes of conservative pundit Candace Owens suggest Russell may be the female Jussie Smollett, though that and other skepticism provoking an angry response from many online who say the conspiracy theories are racist. People saying things like, what's wild is how the allegations of a hoax have started with absolutely no evidence. Y'all don't trust black women. Y'all don't believe black women. Y'all don't even want the bare minimum of safety for us. And others adding, it's nasty work to believe that because your thirst for entertainment has not been quenched by Carly Russell and her family that something is off. They are entitled to privacy, period. If you're that concerned for safety reasons about what happened to her, contact the Hoover Police Department. But ultimately for now, as we're recording, that's where things stand. And honestly, until there's more concrete information that clears up all the speculation, this is going to remain a mystery and people are going to keep sounding off on it. Though in the meantime, I got to pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts here? And then, this guy's been described as a big, goofy family man. He's had a successful career, a 25-year marriage, and it turns out he is one of Long Island's most notorious serial killers. Or at least that's what investigators are claiming now that they've arrested a suspect for the Gilgo Beach murders. Which, if you haven't heard of, this goes back to 2010, when the remains of nine women, one man, and one toddler were found off a highway near Gilgo Beach. Most of the victims were sex workers in their 20s who went missing over the previous few years. But for the next 13 years, the case went cold with the Gilgo Beach killer becoming this kind of boogeyman for the local area. That is, until last week when police announced that they had found the man who did it, a hulking 6'4", 59-year-old creep by the name of Rex Hewerman. Rex Hewerman, I'm an architect, I'm an architectural consultant, I'm a troubleshooter, born and raised on Long Island. Okay. Been right. working in Manhattan since 1987. And as for the evidence, police reportedly connected him to the murders through a discarded pizza box with DNA matching a hair found on the burlap used to wrap a body, as well as four burner phones. Police say that he activated before each murder and shut off afterward. Court records showing a Google search history that allegedly shows he closely followed the murder investigation, looked up sex workers and torture porn, and stalked and harassed the victims' families after killing them. Also inside his home, detectives reportedly found over 200 guns and a life-size doll inside a glass case. But all of this leading to last week, video capturing the moment when agents and dark suits swarmed on Fifth Avenue in New York for his arrest. And on Thursday, he was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, and he's the prime suspect in a fourth. Though there, he pled not guilty, and his lawyer saying that he wept when he was arrested. But what's been perhaps most shocking for so many people is how normal this guy appeared to be. At the same time that he allegedly murdered several women, he also was living the suburban life with his wife and two kids. Also notably there, police saying that his wife's hair was found on multiple bodies, though she was out of state when the murders happened. And the county commissioner saying that he believes that the family were completely unaware of his crimes, saying they were shocked, they were disgusted, they were embarrassed. 
house. Meanwhile, you had neighbors telling the Times that the family was reclusive and enigmatic. Cashiers at a supermarket saying they knew them as this quiet, cheerless family that shopped several times a week, though Hewerman never accompanied them. But then also you had others describing him as a menace, saying they told their kids to avoid his house on Halloween, that he glared at them while swinging an axe in his front yard, with one neighbor saying we would cross the street, he was somebody you don't want to approach. And all the descriptions of people either who were like close in proximity to him or actually knew him kind of show how he was able to compartmentalize things. With these back-to-back -back lines from the New York Times, I think really highlighting this. With the article stating Mr. Hewerman's friends and clients in the real estate business were flabbergasted, but then saying his neighbor said, I wasn't surprised at all because of all the creepiness. And I think that's why you should almost like never be surprised by things because whoever you get in the moment, that's who they're giving you. But with all this, you do still have to keep in mind Hewerman is still insisting on his innocence, and so we're gonna have to see how this trial plays out. And then, Barbenheimer is fast approaching. We're just now days away, and with the dual strike happening right now, while well, there's a lot of excitement, there are also a lot of questions. Because you got some consumers calling for a boycott of streaming services, others wondering if they're crossing some sort of picket line just by going to see a movie in the theaters. Some wondering, do I need to cancel my tickets to show solidarity? And well, there, the, the short answer is no, that's not necessary. You can still go to the theaters and watch TV and support the writers and actors. But right now, neither of the guilds asking consumers to boycott any content, so your Barbenheimer double feature can continue as planned. Though current box office estimates say that at least domestically, about twice as many people are expected to go watch Barbie. But more specifically with the situation, you had one WGA strike captain tweeting, WGA nor SAG have asked for a boycott of the streamers. So that's not union guidelines, but you do you. But you can donate to the entertainment fund or bring water to the picket lines. It's really hot outside or food. Meanwhile, you also have others encouraging people to go to the theater and watch television or saying the show slash movies created prior to the strike still deserve your support and adding do not boycott anything coming out soon unless the unions call for it. Go see Barbie Oppenheimer. Another SAG strike captain adding, a reminder, SAG is not called for a consumer boycott. Please keep watching TV and films. If anything, this helps prove the studios need us. AI doesn't have the soul or emotion real people do. Also, this helps prove marginalized stories and actors are sorely needed in our industry. Which on that note, if you want to donate to the Entertainment Community Fund, which helps impacted workers as well as the Union Solidarity Fund, I'll link to those down below. And then, is it a scam or is it just trash? That is the debate around this situation involving two creators by the name of Moist Critical and Nick E. User. Because Moist Critical says that he got scammed. Yesterday, posting a video saying he was going through Steam to play some of the worst games there when he came across a game called Greed of Man with terrible reviews. Saying it looked like a fun, shitty game, it caught his attention, normally at a $30 price tag, though he got it on sale for $20. $20 for the worst experience I've ever had on Bad Games Night. The game's not a scam just because it's bad. I'm gonna get into it in a moment. It's a legitimate genuine scam by all definitions. With him then going on to describe the game as empty and non-functional, saying he went to the Steam community forums to see if there was any chatter, and... And it turns out this game was actually developed by a TikTok star. His name is Nick the User, and he is apparently notorious for making fake games and hosing his audience down for money, buying into the idea that he's a great game developer releasing hit products. With Greed of Man apparently being his latest endeavor, which he initially promised would be free to play, but then it hit the market at $30, even though the price was eventually lower. And according to Moyes, he believes that one aspect of it might be similar to a phishing scam as well. Because as he was playing it on Steam, tons of people started telling him it was a scam. He then later stopped playing to get a refund, but also realized to play the game, he had to put his Steam account information in. So he speculated. Let me run through how I think this goes. I think what's happened here is Nick has made games like this, which are basically like GTA Online or Roblox Open World, come in, come on. And what happens is when you try and play the game, you have to sign up on his website, which I did, and you have to link your Steam, which I did, like an absolute buffoon. 
So I think what he does then is he maybe sells your information somewhere. And saying he doesn't think Nick uses the information himself, but rather he's a data harvester. And notably, Moist isn't the first YouTuber speaking out against Nick. Right just last week, another YouTuber by the name of Big Fry TV also made similar allegations, saying Nick amassed a large audience promoting a different failed game before Greed of Man, and saying he's now making almost $3,000 a month off of his Patreon, where he says he promises stuff like early access betas, including to Greed of Man. Right, so you have all that, and then for his part, Nick, who is apparently only 17, responded to previous scamming accusations by saying he's just a high schooler who does this for fun on the side and adding scams are something where you get your money taken and you don't get anything out of it this it's a steam game you can buy the game and if you don't like it you refund it and today he actually made a video responding to moist saying he understands why he thinks the game's a scam and wants to correct any wrongs and about calling all of my games and projects scams you i just don't think i fully understand how large my audience truly is like in my mind, when I was making those projects, I had a really small like community of just a few people that were kind of interested and were willing to pay a decent amount of money to help me develop and learn new skills with the game development. But I understand now that my community is so big that if I release a project, it's got to be good or else it's going to be listed as a scam. Which he said he takes responsibility for, saying he thought only a couple people would spend $30, that he didn't anticipate so many people buying it. And so with that, saying he's working to get the game to a better state. He also addressed the choice to charge for the game instead of making it free, saying that he wants to build up so he can start his own studio. I'm not trying to be a scammer. I'm trying to be a genuine developer and I just didn't approach things correctly. He also made a video showing his future plans for Greed of Man and responded to a comment asking about the login info on his website. And to that, he said it's for moderation and to prevent pirating, but he's working on a way to get seamlessly logged in without the website. With all that then bringing us back to the question of, is it actually a scam or is it just trash? It's like a variation of that other game that we constantly play of, is it evil or just stupid? And part of the reason there are always such big debates around those things is it's an argument around intent. And so we'll have to wait to see how things play out. But in the meantime, I'd love to know which camp you land in. Are you in the camp of this was a scam or something? something scammy or do you think this is a situation where uh, a kid got in over his head and now a bunch of people are piling on which side do you agree with and why and then we're hoping to get back to italy someday so i'm working on my italiano ti piace il mio spettacolo i still got to work on it a lot but uh miles better than when i was a kid just not understanding what my grandparents were saying in the car but you know thanks to the fantastic sponsor of today's show Babel, i can ask random people in italy if they like my show which by the way uh the answer is no we have almost no viewership there but look the best way to learn a language is through immersion living where the language is spoken natively using it every day, or you just download and use Babbel to start speaking your chosen language in as little as three weeks. Right, Babbel came in handy when we were in Mexico. I refreshed up my Spanish skills, something that was very important because I failed Spanish too twice back in high school. But doing it this way, it helped me build up my confidence. And so instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or using language apps that are a little more than games, try Babbel's 10-minute lessons designed by real people for real conversations. Their tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Plus, their speech recognition technology helped me improve my Spanish pronunciation and accent, which in part boosted my confidence, and it also seemed like the locals appreciated it as well. And get this, right now, you can get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but it's only for you beautiful bastards if you go to babbel.com slash defranco. Yeah, that's 55% off at babbel.com slash defranco, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash defranco. Rules and restrictions may apply. And then, according to an absolutely insane new report from the Houston Chronicle, officers working for Texas Governor Greg Abbott's Border Security Initiative have been ordered to push small children and nursing babies babies back into the Rio Grande and have been told not to give water to asylum seekers even in extreme heat, with those allegations coming from an email sent by a Department of Public Safety trooper to a superior and viewed by Hearst Newspapers, which owns The Chronicle as well as CNN. And notably, all this comes as Abbott has recently ramped up efforts to prevent migrants from crossing the border through his controversial Operation Lone Star policy. And with this, the email provides several previously unreported incidents that the trooper witnessed firsthand in Eagle Pass, which is the target of the most aggressive initiatives under Operation Lone Star. This including miles of razor wire being strung up and a large wall of buoys being deployed 
deployed along the Rio Grande River. Those efforts not only attracting widespread criticism from human rights activists, but also drawing legal complaints from the Mexican government and created conflicts with federal officials. With Hearst newspapers reporting last week that federal border patrol officials issued internal warnings that the razor wire is preventing their agents from reaching at-risk migrants and increasing the risk of drownings in the Rio Grande. And in that, you had the trooper also suggesting that Texas has set barrels wrapped in razor wire in parts of the Rio Grande where the water levels are high, but visibility is poor and calling them traps. And reportedly adding that the wire has caused more drownings because migrants are forced to deeper parts of the river and the trooper writing. I believe we have stepped over a line into the inhumane. We need to operate it correctly in the eyes of God. We need to recognize that these are people who are made in the image of God and need to be treated as such. And the stories they witnessed and shared in the email are absolutely wild. And keep in mind, all of these incidents took place just over the course of one week, with the trooper detailing four absolutely horrible examples that took place just on June 30th alone. This including a group of people who had a four-year-old girl with them who were trying to cross the wire but were pressed back by Texas Guard soldiers due to orders given to them. With a little girl passing out from exhaustion due to the recent heat wave, which brought temperatures of well over 100 degrees. In another instance, a young woman who was said to be in obvious pain she was stuck in wire with a medical assessment later determining that she was pregnant and having a miscarriage. The trooper also treated a man who had a significant laceration on his leg after he cut his child free from a barrel with razor wire, as well as a 15-year-old who broke his leg in the river because the razor wire was, quote, laid out in a manner that it forced him into the river where it is unsafe to travel. And just days before those four incidents, the email also described a group of 120 migrants, including several young children and babies, who were camped out near a fence along the river. With the trooper writing that the group was exhausted and hungry, but the shift officer in command had ordered troops to push the people back into the water to go to Mexico. With the troopers there deciding that was wrong because it brought the very real potential of exhausted people drowning. And so again, they called command with their concerns, but were ordered to tell them to go to Mexico and get into our vehicle and leave. Beyond that, the trooper's email also sheds new light on a series of previously reported drownings in the river during a one-week stretch earlier this month, that including a mother and at least one of her two children who Federal Border Patrol agents spotted struggling to cross the Rio Grande on July 1st. And so with all that, you the trooper also calling for a number of policy changes to fix migrant safety, with that including removing wire razor barrels and getting rid of the directive on withholding water. But notably here, in an email to reporters, the Department of Public Safety spokesperson said that there was not a policy against giving water to migrants, but he did acknowledge that the DPS was aware of the email and even gave the Chronicle more emails in response with the outlet reporting. Those emails detail seven other incidents reported by federal border agents in which migrants were injured on the wires, including children. And among the emails shared by the spokesman was one from DPS Director Stephen McCross sent just this weekend where he called for an audit to see if more steps can be taken to decrease the risk posed to migrants by Abbott's policy. And McCraw also noting in another email that there's been an increase in injuries from the wire, writing the purpose of the wire is to deter smuggling between the ports of entry and not to injure migrants. And adding, we must take all necessary measures to mitigate the risk to them, including injuries from trying to cross over the concertina wire, drownings, and dehydration. But despite everything we've talked about, a spokesperson for Abbott appeared to defend his policies in a statement to both the Chronicle and CNN, painting his actions as necessary steps to protect the border and accusing federal officials of failing to do so, saying Texas is deploying every tool and strategy to deter and repel illegal crossings between ports of entry as President Biden's dangerous open border policies entice migrants from over 150 countries to risk their lives entering the country illegally, and claiming that the absence of razor wire and other deterrent strategies encourages migrants to make unsafe and illegal crossings between ports of entry while making the job of Texas National Guard soldiers and DPS troopers more dangerous and difficult. But of course, this story and Abbott's response have gained widespread backlash from many people and even top leaders in the state, and that including Beto O'Rourke, who trended on Twitter this morning alongside the story after sharing the article in writing, Abbott, you are a thug, a murderer, a ghoul. People are dying while you play war games against defenseless mothers and children. Pro-life my ass. With him also calling on Biden to step in and saying that he's the one person who has the power to stop Abbott, which is also something that's been echoed by other leaders and some leaders calling for a federal investigation. But with that, we've also seen experts say it's unclear what powers exactly Biden would have here, as well as would he actually try to step in and use his executive authorities over a governor? Because even if he did, any challenge would likely be taken to the courts. And then, I never thought I'd have to give this advice, but uh, do not run into North Korea. And I say that because this one American soldier apparently thought that this would be a good idea. Notably,
Basically, he hasn't been heard from since he did this. It's believed that he's now in North Korean custody. But of course, one of the biggest questions is how did he manage to cross arguably the most fortified border in the world? And apparently, uh, he just stepped over it, with the incident happening when he was on tour of the Joint Security Area, where the South Korean side's run by the United Nations Command and has completely open public tours all the time. And unlike the DMZ, which is an almost two and a half mile buffer around the rest of the border full of landmines and barbed wire, you can actually just walk into North Korea from this spot, with the border just marked by a single concrete line and you won't get shot for doing it as the soldiers aren't even armed. Right, so where you might remember Trump walked over to meet his BFF Kim Jong-un. Now initially, there was some mystery as to whether this was like an accident or what actually happened, but now US officials are quoted as saying that he willfully and without authorization crossed the border and more information has been slowly trickling out, with it now reported that the unnamed soldier was actually facing disciplinary action and being escorted back to the US. But somehow, through whatever means, he managed to shake his escort to the airport and got back into South Korea where he joined this tour. And an eyewitness actually told Reuters that while at the joint security area, the man gave out a loud ha 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 and just runs in between some of the buildings. And usually there are guards near the buildings, but it's also not unheard of them to back off a bit during the tours. And as for the North Korean side, it actually hasn't had visible guards since the pandemic began. But ultimately with where we are, you have the US and UN moving to have the soldier released, but he's also probably gonna have a bad time because on top of the disciplinary action he may already be facing, he's looking at more problems because of the stunt. And also keep in mind, his timing could not have been worse. Tensions between North Korea, the US and South Korea have been rising lately with North Korea testing more and more advanced missile systems. So it really wouldn't be surprising if we saw this soldier turned into a bargaining chip or a propaganda piece. Right in the past, you've actually had US soldiers defect to North Korea for a variety of reasons and they're turned into tools to show the citizens there, hey, look how great North Korea is. But uh, just a friendly bit of advice, if you are on the run, a lot of better places than North Korea. Like almost literally every other place. And then you've heard this song before, but uh, it looks like Trump's gonna be federally indicted again. Because just today, the former president said in a post on Truth Social that he received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith this weekend informing him that he's the target of a federal criminal investigation into the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. With Trump calling Smith deranged again and claiming that the special counsel gave him a very short four days to report to the grand jury, which almost always means an arrest and indictment. Which, I mean, he's not wrong in the last part. When someone gets a letter from the DOJ telling them that they're the target of a probe, it's usually really good sign they're about to be indicted. And to give you like a little quick catch up here, target is actually a technical term that the DOJ defines as a person to whom the prosecutor or the grand jury has substantial evidence linking him or her to the commission of a crime. And the DOJ specifically encouraging prosecutors to send so-called target letters in cases where people are likely to be indicted so they get the opportunity to testify before the grand jury and their probe. And very notably, Trump was indicted on federal charges just days after it was reported that he had gotten a target letter for the Mar-a-Lago inquiry. Or in other words, here it seems like Trump's going to be indicted on the January 6th probe in a matter of days or weeks, which for Trump would be the third time he's been indicted and it would be a second federal indictment. Now, very notably with this one, experts say that an indictment related to the insurrection would actually be much more difficult to prove than the mishandling of sensitive government documents. But also the charges would be brought in Washington, DC, where the jury pool would likely be less sympathetic to Trump than it would be in Florida, where the charges in the documents probe are being heard. And then the state of news right now is crisis. It's really just a matter of which kind and at which level. For example, it's not a secret that local news is in crisis. We're talking about a reported 7% of all counties in America now having no local news outlets with another 20% on the brink of becoming news deserts. And Everywhere you turn, there are headlines talking about the loss of local newsrooms and the potentially disastrous consequences, and there are very few solutions being thrown out, which is why many news outlets have turned their attention towards modern tools like streaming and AI in an effort to stay afloat in their communities. There's actually been some movement on the streaming front with hundreds of local TV broadcast stations rallying together to be heard. But we're talking about more than 600 broadcaster stations that are a part of trade associations representing the local affiliates of major networks like ABC and Fox, all of which have joined together forming the Coalition for Local News. And that coalition recently sending a letter to the FCC pressuring them to close a legal 
loophole that would leave local stations in the dust. Because that loophole is part of a provision from 2014 that requires traditional TV providers to negotiate directly with local broadcasters to carry their stations. However, the FCC doesn't define live streaming television the same way it does traditional TV. So that loophole allows live streaming TV companies like YouTube's to completely bypass negotiations with local broadcasters. With Michael O'Brien, Senior Vice President and Chief Distribution Officer of One Local Broadcast Group saying, there's no way for us to advance our own individual strategies as broadcasters when we don't have a say in the largest growing platform and revenue stream in our business. So the coalition wants the FCC to refresh the rules to reflect the modern streaming age, and that could force a completely new definition of what a TV provider is. And it makes sense why they want these changes. Right? I mean, the last time these rules were debated, there were fewer than 200,000 Americans subscribed to digital live TV, but now analysts estimate that's around 17 million. Now with this, the FCC says that while it can issue a public call for a refresh, it doesn't have the authority to actually change the provision itself. Instead, it needs the backing of Congress. Which brings us to the lawmakers where we've actually seen some support, including the likes of Senators Chuck Grassley and Maria Cantwell. And in fact, last month, the FCC said that it was planning on investigating whether the current TV distribution models need to be revised, so this is something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Though notably, they aren't stopping at streaming, because national and even local news have partnered with AI firms as well. And we're not talking like with little firms, we're talking about OpenAI, the parent of ChatGPT, with them actually announcing they've reached a two-year deal with the American Journalism Project to help local outlets experiment with AI technology, with OpenAI committing $5 million in funding to the AJP, who in turn will use it to offer grants to its organizations to experiment with AI and find the best practices for its use in newsrooms and products. With that money also reportedly being used to create a studio with the AJP to support local news as they experiment with the technology and share feedback with OpenAI and what is and isn't working. And the CEO of AJP saying, we see this as an opportunity to create a feedback loop between OpenAI and the local journalism industry. Right? It's just one part of their greater goal of establishing a relationship with the journalism industry for news and tech share. Like for example, just last week, they announced a two-year deal with the Associated Press to share access to certain news content and technology. With the AP offering up some of their text archives for OpenAI to train their artificial intelligence. And with that, the AP will get access to OpenAI's technology and expertise. And with this, Axios is reporting that this partnership is meant for both sides to determine what responsible use of artificial intelligence in the newsroom looks like. Because there's been a lot of concern about the future of AI, specifically in news. With their senior VP and CFO saying, news organizations must have a seat at the table to ensure this happens so that newsrooms large and small can leverage this technology to benefit journalism. And that is where your daily dive into the news is going to end. But for more news you need to know, I got you covered right here or in those links down below. And if you've already watched everything, do not worry because my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you right back here tomorrow.